For those of us who enjoy a good scare, Halloween usually comes with much excitement and celebration. But just because the horror isn't real for you doesn't mean it wasn't for others on All Hallows' Eve. Kaylee Elise joins me in this special edition of Twisted Tens on 10 Horrific Halloween Tragedies. Receiving candy from strangers seems like a bad idea, but on Halloween, it's tradition, despite worries of poisoned candy. However, on October 31st, 1974, the small community of Deer Park, Texas, learned that it isn't necessarily strangers that you should fear. Dressed in a Planet of the Apes costume, eight-year-old Timothy O'Brien and his younger sister, Elizabeth, set out with their father, Ronald O'Brien, for a night of trick-or-treating. Later, Ronald told his son he could eat one piece of candy before he went to bed, and Timothy chose an oversized pixie stick. But after a few bites, he found that the powder was too bitter. Just minutes later, he was vomiting and convulsing uncontrollably on the bathroom floor. He was rushed to the hospital, but was dead within the hour. His pixie stick had been laced with cyanide. When questioned by the authorities, Ronald wove a story about receiving the candy from a neighbor, but he was later arrested after police found physical evidence linking him to the crime. Authorities then uncovered Ronald's motive. He was over $100,000 in debt and had recently taken out $60,000 worth of insurance on both of his children and had deliberately poisoned them, intending to collect on the money. He gave the poison candy to other neighborhood trick-or-treaters in an attempt to throw suspicion off of himself, though luckily, none of the other children opened their candy that night. Ronald maintained he was innocent until his dying day, despite all of the evidence against him. When he was executed in 1984, he called the death sentence human error, but parents and children who knew him as the man who killed Halloween felt that justice had been served. From all outside appearances, Peter and Betty Fabiano were happily married. But on October 31st, 1957, Peter opened his door expecting a trick-or-treater and instead was staring down the barrel of a gun. It was just past 11 p.m. in Sun Valley, California, when Peter and his wife turned out the lights to go to bed, only to hear the doorbell ring again. Slightly annoyed by the late trick-or-treaters, Peter opened the door, saying, "'Isn't it late for this sort of thing?' He looked up just in time to see a masked figure pull a gun out of a candy bag. The culprit fired one shot that struck Peter just beneath his heart and then turned and fled into a waiting car. Peter didn't survive the encounter and police had no good leads, but Betty suspected the murder was the work of her recent ex-lover and friend, Joan Rabble. Joan and Betty had recently lived together while Betty was having marital problems with Peter, during which time they formed a romantic connection. However, that connection was severed after Betty decided to reconcile with her husband. Betty's suspicions were confirmed when 40-year-old Goldine Pizer admitted to killing Peter, but said Joan was the brains behind the entire operation. Both Goldine and Joan were only convicted of second-degree murder as a plea bargain, despite evidence they'd extensively planned to kill Peter for months. Premeditation is a prerequisite for first-degree murder, so the conviction was understandably upsetting. As for Betty, she was never charged with any involvement, and she claimed she was unaware of the plot to murder her husband. With Halloween just around the corner, 69-year-old Marvin Brandlin and his wife Ethel spent the night in 1982 handing out candy to local trick-or-treaters. 
However, the couple, who had been married for 46 years, could not have known the violence that awaited them when they opened the door to a ghost. A man stood on the Brandlands' porch wearing a pillowcase with eye holes over his face and said, Trick or treat, give me your money or I'll shoot. Ethel, thinking it was a prank by a relative, turned to retrieve the candy and the man forced his way into the house and pointed a gun at a stunned Marvin. The intruder demanded Marvin take him down into the basement to retrieve the money out of the couple's safe. Shocked and frightened, the couple made their way to the kitchen towards the cellar when Marvin made an attempt for the robber's gun, only to be shot in the throat during the struggle. The intruder fled, leaving his mask behind. Marvin died while on the operating table on October 31st, and Ethel passed away just months later, with family citing her grief as the reason behind her decline in health. The Brandlins felt that their father's killer was someone in the family, as only family knew about Marvin and Ethel's safe in the basement. They even suspected a particular family member who was allegedly bragging about the murder afterwards. However, the police were unable to extract enough DNA evidence to make a match to the unnamed relative, and the murder is still considered unsolved. On October 31st, 2004, roommates Leslie, Adrienne, and Lauren spent the night handing out candy to the local children of Napa, California. Around 11 p.m., they shut off the lights and turned in for the evening. But even though the trick-or-treating had ended, the roommates were about to encounter a monster of a different kind. Lauren was fast asleep when she suddenly awoke to the sound of a struggle and screams for help coming from Adrienne and Leslie's room upstairs. Terrified, she fled into the backyard and hid until she saw a dark figure crawl out the back window and disappear into the night. Lauren re-entered the house only to be met with a chilling sight. The bodies of her two friends, Leslie Mazzara and Adrienne Insagna, stabbed to death on the floor. Police arrived within minutes, but a search for the assailant turned up nothing. The only lead they had was a handful of cigarette butts outside the house that matched DNA evidence at the crime scene. Nearly a year later, after interviewing over 1,500 people, police caught a break when a man named Eric Koppel turned himself in, confessing to the murders. Eric, who was married to one of Adrienne's best friends, claimed he'd been drinking and partying the night of the murder, but couldn't explain why he'd broken into the girl's house, nor why he attacked and killed Adrienne and Leslie, only that he was struggling with alcoholism and family problems at the time. After a DNA match from the crime scene was confirmed, police arrested their killer. Eric Koppel struck a plea bargain and waived his rights to make any future appeals in order to escape the death penalty, and he was found guilty on December 5th, 2006. He will spend the rest of his life behind bars for the senseless Halloween murders. On Halloween afternoon in 2011, in the small town of Armstrong, British Columbia, several people heard a female screaming. The sun was about to set and the local trick-or-treating was about to begin, so everyone dismissed the screams as spirited Halloween fair. But they couldn't have been more wrong. Around 6 p.m., 18-year-old Taylor Van Diest began her walk to her friend's Halloween party, dressed as a zombie. On the way, she was texting her friend, and suddenly she sent a message saying that she felt like someone was following her, and that she was being creeped on. It was the last message Taylor would ever send. When she didn't show up at her friend's house, she was reported missing, but police didn't have to look long until they found her lying next to a railroad track, unconscious and dying. She'd been bludgeoned to death on the head, and she later succumbed to her injuries while in the hospital. Over the course of the next six months, detectives received anonymous letters from someone claiming to be Taylor's killer, 
but it wasn't until April 2012 that authorities found a DNA match to a 26-year-old Matthew Forrester. Matthew recalled he'd been drinking and smoking weed on Halloween night and had followed Taylor with hopes of propositioning her for consensual sex. However, she rejected him and he pushed her, at which time Matthew claims she hit her head on a steel pipe on the ground. But her multiple injuries and defensive wounds led the jury to believe he wouldn't take no for an answer and had beat her to death after being rejected. Matthew was sentenced to 25 years in prison without the chance for parole, and Matthew's father, Stephen, who had attempted to help his son flee during the investigation, was also charged and spent three years behind bars for his involvement. Having money and influence doesn't always guarantee your safety, and unfortunately for Martha Moxley, who was murdered at age 15, her convicted killer's prominent name and familial connections had caused many to doubt his guilt over the years. Martha was well-liked and popular in school, and she resided in the peaceful community of Greenwich, Connecticut. It was there she caught the attention of two neighbors, 17-year-old Thomas and 15-year-old Michael Skakel. The Skakel family had massive wealth and close relations to Senator Robert F. Kennedy's widow, Ethel Skakel Kennedy. Martha and the brothers became fast friends, and on the night before Halloween, the Skakels had a house party where she was seen kissing Thomas. Allegedly, Michael was jealous of his older brother, as he too had feelings for Martha. Later on that night, the party broke apart, but Martha never returned home. Worried, her mother phoned all the neighbors and nearby friends, but Martha was nowhere to be found. But as daylight broke on the 31st, the Moxleys discovered their daughter's body in their own backyard. Martha lay dead under a tree with her pants pulled down. She'd been beaten to death with a golf club, but not sexually assaulted. However, there was semen at the crime scene that was traced back to Michael Skakel. Michael claimed to have been masturbating under that same tree the night of Martha's murder, but that he hadn't had anything to do with her death. Both Michael and Thomas changed their alibi several times in the course of the investigation, but it wasn't until over 25 years had passed that Michael was arrested and charged with Martha's murder. Michael's affluent family saw an innocent, devoted family man who'd been wrongly convicted, but others who knew him saw a man who was quick to anger and who used his wealth and power to get what he wanted. At one point, Michael even bragged to two former classmates that he was going to get away with murder because he was a Kennedy. Michael was found guilty in 2002, but received a new trial in 2012 due to Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s involvement and was subsequently released in 2013. He currently resides in Connecticut, where he is monitored 24-7 with GPS and is legally forbidden from contacting Martha's family. Before the age of the internet and endless information at our fingertips, the world felt like a much safer place. So safe, in fact, that many parents would allow their children to go trick-or-treating on their own. However, the residents of Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, were shocked when one of their own went out on Halloween night and never returned home. Nine-year-old Lisa French was last seen trick-or-treating in her neighborhood before she seemingly vanished on Halloween of 1973. Just days later, her body was found inside of a plastic bag in a farmer's field. She'd been raped and murdered. After nine months with no solid leads, 25-year-old Gerald Turner, Lisa's former neighbor and alleged friend, came forward and confessed to kidnapping, sexually assaulting, and killing Lisa. Gerald was found guilty of second-degree murder, but was later released from his sentence, though it may comfort parents everywhere to know he's currently in jail again for violating his parole. 
Lisa's mother has had contact with Gerald during his time locked away, and even sent him handwritten notes Lisa herself made before she died, notes that detailed how to get into heaven. Ronald Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman were a seemingly normal couple living in Manhattan, but they made news headlines for weeks after they turned up dead in their apartment on Halloween night in 1981. And as police dug deeper into the lives of the victims, they realized Ronald might not be so normal after all. The 39-year-old Canadian photographer had at one time been accused of dealing drugs, and though he was never convicted, police thought the murders could have been related. However, the crime scene looked more like a robbery. The entire apartment had been ransacked, both victims' IDs had been stolen, and Elizabeth and Ronald had each been killed by a single close-range shot to the back of the head. The police had no leads, but they received chilling information from a prison informant who reported his cellmate had predicted the murder two weeks prior. The cellmate said that a couple would have their head shot off for a satanic cult's Halloween bloodletting ritual, and that the crime scene would be ransacked to remove evidence. The prisoner even described the layout of the flat in a particular chandelier found in Ronald and Elizabeth's apartment. The cellmate was none other than Son of Sam killer David Berkowitz, who was responsible for a violent string of shootings and murders in New York City between 1976 and 1977. Following his conviction, David claimed he'd been a member of a satanic cult who had heavy involvement in the murders he was convicted of. He claimed that they targeted Ronald Sisman because he had incriminating evidence of one of the Son of Sam crime scenes and had been planning to give it to authorities. In addition, David claimed Ronald was close with movie producer Roy Alexander Raiden, a supposed big shot in the cult. Before Roy could be investigated, however, he was murdered on May 13, 1983 by a proclaimed Satanist. However, there is no evidence to support David Berkowitz's claims and no arrests have been made, and the murder of Ronald and Elizabeth remains unsolved. The Liskey family fought to stay happy, despite their differences and despite the violent behavior of 25-year-old William Liskey Jr. By the time William was 18, he'd been arrested for robbery and had attempted to attack his stepmother, Susan Liskey, while she was in the shower, after which he'd been kicked out of the family house in Martin, Ohio. But William's father, Bill Liskey, tried to maintain a normal relationship with his son. So on a Halloween night in 2010, after father and son had downed a few beers with mutual friends, Bill allowed William to stay the night on the couch. But this small gesture of kindness would prove to be his last. That night, William Liskey went on a rampage, beating his 23-year-old stepbrother Derek Griffin to death with a claw hammer before turning a gun on Bill and finally on Susan, whom he also sexually assaulted. The next morning, William's stepbrother, 16-year-old Devin Griffin, returned home after visiting his father for the weekend and discovered a scene so gruesome he thought it was a Halloween prank. But he very quickly realized this was no trick. Police connected the crime to William, who was arrested several hours later, and he confessed to what he had done but could give no reason as to why he had killed his family. Though authorities thought it was possible, he'd recently stopped taking his prescribed medication for his schizoaffective disorder. William was declared mentally ill, but sane enough to stand trial for the murders. In 2011, William was sentenced to life in prison with no chance for parole, narrowly avoiding the death penalty. However, staff at Ross Correctional Institution found his lifeless body in his cell in March of 2015. No foul play is suspected, and it is believed that he took his own life. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. For Chris Jenkins, a 21-year-old student attending the University of Minnesota in 2002, Halloween seemed like the perfect excuse to celebrate, have a drink, and relax away from the pressures of academic life. But by the end of the night, the horror turned from fun to tragically real. Chris and a group of his friends donned costumes and hopped from a keg party to the Lone Tree Bar and Grill in downtown Minneapolis, where they continued their festivities. At some point during the night, Chris was kicked out of the bar by security and wasn't allowed back inside. Alone and standing in frigid temperatures without his phone, wallet, or keys, it is believed Chris began walking. By the next morning, he'd vanished. Police, family, and friends searched extensively for Chris, but found nothing that could tell them where he'd gone or what happened to him. It wasn't until February 2003 when the Mississippi River thawed that Christopher was found dead. His body was spotted floating in the river attached to a tree branch, and he was still wearing the Halloween costume he'd disappeared in. After the initial investigation, Chris's death was ruled an accidental drowning or a possible suicide. But the Jenkins family adamantly believed Chris had been a victim of foul play, and they hired a private investigator to prove it. In 2006, the Minneapolis Police Department, faced with new evidence, issued an apology to the Jenkins family and reclassified Chris's death as a homicide. But despite the new evidence, Chris's killer and his exact fate remain a mystery. And the theories of what horrific fate befell him range from gang-related initiation murder to Chris being a victim of the smiley face murders. A man driven insane by intense desire to control, manipulate, and kill led one of the most horrific serial killing sprees of his time. Today, we discuss the Candyman, Dean Coral. Let's open the serial killer file. Dean Arnold Coral was born on Christmas Eve, 1939, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the oldest of two sons. His parents, Mary Robinson and Arnold Coral, had a tumultuous relationship. Arnold was a strict disciplinarian, while Mary was extremely protective of Dean. The pair fought constantly, resulting in divorce in 1946. Following their first divorce, Mary Coral moved with the children to Memphis, Tennessee when Arnold was drafted into the Air Force, trying to keep her sons close to their father. Eventually, Dean's parents reconciled and remarried in 1950, moving to Pasadena, Texas, but eventually divorced for a second time in 1953. Two years later, Mary remarried a traveling clock salesman named Jake West and gave birth to daughter Joyce, settling in Vider, Texas. The couple started a candy company together called Pecan Prince, where Dean and his younger brother Stanley worked day and night 
during their school years. Dean was a quiet, empathetic child but had bouts of illness in his early years. At age 7, he contracted rheumatic fever, which went untreated until doctors detected he had a heart murmur at the age of 11, a diagnosis that excused him from physical education classes. During his high school years, he was known as a well-behaved but solitary student who achieved modest grades. Upon graduating in 1958, he moved with his family to Houston to expand their business, but just two years later, Dean moved in with his widowed grandmother in Indiana. He began a relationship with a young woman who proposed to him in 1962, but Dean rejected her and moved back to Texas to help with his family's business. His mother divorced his stepfather the following year, renaming the company to Coral Candy Company and appointing Dean vice president. Later that year, Mary fired a teenage employee who complained Dean was making sexual advances toward him. Despite his heart condition, Dean was drafted into the Army in August of 1964 and was sent to Fort Polk, Louisiana for basic training. He later trained at Fort Benning in Georgia as a radio repairman and was permanently assigned to Fort Hood, Texas. During his time in the military, he had his first openly homosexual encounters. Despite an impeccable record, Dean hated the military and sought to return to the family business. He was honorably discharged from service on June 11, 1965, and returned to working for the candy company. The family business had moved to Houston Heights, where Dean became known as the Candy Man and the Pied Piper, due to his habit of providing candy to the children in the area. He was also known to flirt with many of his teenage male employees. Eventually, the family business shut down in 1968 when Dean's mother and half-sister moved to Colorado, leading him to take a job as an electrician. Dean met 12-year-old David Brooks in 1967. David came from a broken home and bounced between his parents. He quickly became attached to Dean, looking to him as a father figure, and visited him when David traveled from his mother's home in Beaumont, Texas, to Houston. Two years into their friendship, Dean groomed David into sexual relationship, exchanging cash or gifts for oral sex. Dean began his heinous murder spree in 1970, exploiting his hold over 15-year-old David to his advantage. When David walked in on him assaulting two teenage boys in his apartment that year, Dean bribed him into silence, offering to buy him a car. Later, he would end up paying him to help lure in victims. His first victim was 18-year-old Jeffrey Cohen. Jeffrey, a college freshman, disappeared while hitchhiking home from the University of Texas in Austin. Police suspected Dean and David picked Jeffrey up from Houston, took him to Dean's apartment where he was abused, tortured, and strangled to death. Later, David helped lure 14-year-old James Glass and Danny Yates away from a nearby religious rally to the apartment where they met their end at Dean's hands. Then, on January 30, 1971, the duo kidnapped 15-year-old Donald and 13-year-old Jerry Waldrop while they walked home. Like the other victims, they were assaulted, tortured, and murdered, and had their bodies disposed of in one of Dean's dump sites. From March to May of 1971, Dean claimed the lives of 15-year-old Randall Harvey, 13-year-old David Hillegeist, and 16-year-old Gregory Winkle, all with the help of David Brooks. 
No one was off limits from Dean Coral's clutches, even David's friends, such as 17-year-old Reuben Watson Haney. David lured Reuben to Dean's apartment under the guise of attending a party, but he was subsequently strangled and disposed of. In the fall of 1971, David lured two unknown young boys to the apartment, each separately held alive for four days before their murders. Their identities are still unknown. Towards the end of 1971, David introduced Elmer Wayne Henley to Dean, likely with the intent of having him become their latest victim. However, Dean took a liking to Wayne, a 15-year-old high school dropout from a broken home, and offered him work as a paid accomplice alongside David. Prior to becoming involved with Dean, Wayne had been close friends with two of Dean's victims, even helping their families put up flyers and searching for them. Wayne claimed he ignored and rebuked Dean's offers for months until he agreed to participate in what Dean called a white slavery ring. Wayne's first lured victim is believed to be 17-year-old Willard Branch Jr., who disappeared on February 9, 1972. Wayne claimed he was unaware of Dean's true intentions until the murder of 18-year-old Frank Aguirre, an accomplice of his. The pair were hanging out in Dean's apartment, drinking and smoking marijuana, when Dean took Frank hostage, handcuffing and gagging him. Wayne allegedly tried to persuade Dean to let him go, but Dean refused and revealed the evil acts he had committed thus far. Despite knowing this, Wayne continued to assist him, becoming more and more sadistic, according to David. The following month, David and Wayne helped Dean abduct 17-year-old Mark Scott, who put up a vicious fight and tried to stab his attackers, but gave up at gunpoint. A month later, during the abduction and assault of Johnny DeLome and Billy Balch, Wayne allegedly strangled Billy and shot Johnny in the head non-fatally. The only victim to be set free after being sexually assaulted and tortured was 19-year-old Billy Rittinger. During the summer of 1972, Dean kidnapped and killed 17-year-old Stephen Sickman and 19-year-old Roy Bunton. Two months later, Wayne and David lured Wally J. Simino and Richard Hembry to the apartment where they were held overnight before their deaths. Wally tried to call his mother, but only managed to shout Mama into the phone before it disconnected. The final victim of 1972 was 19-year-old Richard Kepner, who had disappeared on his way to use a phone booth on November 12th. January of 1973 saw the death of 17-year-old Joseph Lyles, David Brooks' neighbor. There was a brief lull in the killing when David fell ill and Wayne moved away for a short time, but it began after David recovered and Wayne returned. William Ray Lawrence was abducted by Dean and Wayne in June 1973 and tortured for three days before he was strangled to death. Two weeks later, 20-year-old married father Ray Blackburn disappeared while hitchhiking from Houston to Baton Rouge. In July, Wayne met 15-year-old Homer Garcia at a driver's education school. Homer ended up dead, shot, and left to bleed to death in Dean's bathtub that night. Dean Coral's last five victims all fell within a three-week period. 17-year-old John Sellers, 15-year-old Michael Balch, the older brother of a former victim, Billy Balch, 18-year-old Marty Jones, 17-year-old Charles Cobb, and 13-year-old James Dramala on August 3rd. All five victims were bound, assaulted, tortured, and strangled to death. 
The final straw for Wayne came on August 8, 1973. Wayne, now 17, brought over their next victim, 19-year-old Timothy Curley, but 15-year-old Rhonda Williams tagged along. Dean did not want a girl in his home. Infuriated, he waited until the teenagers fell asleep before he bound and gagged all three. Wayne convinced Dean to free him so he could participate in torturing Timothy and Rhonda. As Dean began torturing Timothy, Rhonda asked Wayne, Is this for real? To which he replied that it was. Rhonda then asked him, Are you going to do anything about it? Wayne Henley had had enough. Grabbing Dean's 20 caliber pistol, he demanded him to stop. Dean was unfazed, egging him on, saying, You won't do it. Wayne fired at him six times, once in the forehead, twice in the shoulder, and three more times as he slid down against a wall in the hallway. Dean Coral was dead. Wayne was arrested, and while in custody, he detailed how he and David Brooks assisted Dean Coral in raping, murdering, and disposing of victims over three years. Police were skeptical, but upon hearing the names of some of the missing boys, they believed him. A search of Dean's home revealed a plywood torture board he used to restrain his victims, as well as sex toys, handcuffs, and a large knife. Dean's van contained rope, hooks, and a wooden crate with air holes drilled into it. A second wooden crate was found in Dean's backyard, along with another torture board. Supplies to aid in disposing bodies were found at a cabin owned by the Coral family. David Brooks initially denied involvement, but later gave a full confession. Both Wayne and David led police to the bodies. All victims were found buried, 17 in a boat shed in southwest Houston, 4 at Lake Sam Rayburn, 6 at High Island Beach, and 1 at Jefferson County Beach. The body of Mark Scott was never located. Most of the victims were identified by April of 1974. However, it took until 2008 to correctly identify them all. Dean Coral is suspected of numerous other homicides and disappearances in the Houston area. Wayne and David Brooks were tried separately for their roles in the murders, both defenses arguing that they had not directly killed anyone and that they were unwilling assistants. David Brooks was found guilty for the murder of William Lawrence on March 4, 1975 and was sentenced to life imprisonment. Wayne's first trial found him guilty of six counts of murder, and he was sentenced to six consecutive 99-year sentences. He requested a retrial, but was found guilty of all six murders again on June 27, 1979, with the same sentence. Both men are currently serving time in separate prisons in Texas. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way, because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you.
Take care and enjoy your next episode.